Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Jake Roberts, ACE. I've spoken with Jake twice before for the 2015 film Brooklyn and for the 2017 film The Hitman's Bodyguard. Jake also edited the films Hell or High Water and Starred Up. He also edited the TV shows Skins, The Misfits, and The Week We Went to War. Today, as part of my series of Art of the Cut interviews about binge-worthy TV, we're talking about his editing of the TV series Devs on Hulu on the FX network. It also airs in the UK on BBC Two. We spoke on Skype May 21st, 2020. How do you land this job? I can kind of see parallels between this and Brooklyn in just kind of a very deliberate, lovely pacing. Okay, well, that, no, that makes sense. I think I don't think it was Brooklyn that brought me to Alex's attention. The first time I ever actually met Alex was he was talking to Nick Hornby just in the in the kind of award season segment because he was in LA nominated for Ex Machina and Nick was nominated for Brooklyn. I got a call out the blue. I mean, I had seen Ex Machina when it first came out and was just really blown away by it. And I actually said to my agent at the time, I said, this chair ever opens up and, and you hear he's looking for someone, you know, just put me in that room, please. You know, I'll offer anything he's doing. And then I got a call when I was in the middle of cutting out Lord King from him and I thought it was my agent doing their job and earning their 10% and actually had nothing to do with them at all either. He'd, he'd actually seen a film which I'd done some work on very late in the day and you know, as well. sometimes you're brought in as kind of like the second or even in this case third editor to try and have a fresh pair of eyes. It had been a very troubled production and uh, Alex knew people involved in it and he'd been hearing what a disaster this film was for a while and he finally got around to seeing it and he was like, oh, it's actually pretty good. How come the experience of watching it was so different to the experience of hearing about it and my name came up? And so I, weirdly, that was what had sort of brought me to his attention. But, so of all the things I worked on, it was the one I sort of probably least expected to garner me work. But there you go. You never know how these things turn out. And then we got on the phone and, and we seemed to get on pretty well. And then I met him in person and pretty, he actually offered me the job in the room the first time I met him, which has never happened before to me. So that uh, put me on the spot, kind of. I'd only read two of the scripts at that point, And he just, you know, he, he looked me in the eye and said, listen, do you want to do it or not? And and I, I, I kind of, very glad I said yes. That was how it came about. Uh, one of the things that impresses me about watching devs is the lack of use of music to me. Um, I mean, there's definitely music in certain places, but a lot of it plays very uh, clear of music. Is that how you feel about it or no? I mean, we, we had a kind of friends and family test screening so quite near the end of the post-process because because this being TV and, and, and it, Alex and myself and the producers pretty much all come out of um, the world of film. And so we're used to having test screenings and you don't really get that resource in television. There's certainly not the way we were doing it. And so we wanted to kind of get some kind of sense of what was working and what wasn't. So we had a screening which Alex refused to attend, but I sat in and my takeaway from it, the first thing I said to him was, oh my God, it's wall-to-wall music. We've got to 
take half an hour. That wasn't the version you would have heard, but it's not that far off it. So my impression sitting in the room was very self-conscious that we were using music too much. So it's, it's nice to hear that that wasn't your experience. I mean, I, I think what we were always consciously trying to get away from was sort of underscore, you know, where you just kind of have something just rumbling under a scene just to sort of provide an energy or something. That's not to say that there are places where we're using music in that way, but we were certainly trying to fill the spaces more so than just sort of run it under all the scenes. So I think that probably the sparseness you're feeling is the sense of those quite long scenes where there isn't any sort of soundtrack. So I'm definitely glad if that's how it felt. And like with all the processes in this, Alex was using the same people as he's used in all the films he's made. So the same composers were on board and, and he was really just using it in the same way that he has in his other films. He has quite a strong house style, if you like. This is the first time I've been the other side of the curtain, but certainly, you know, seeing Ex Machina and Annihilation simply as a viewer, you know, I could feel a very strong authored aesthetic coming through on all of the visuals and the, the sound and everything. And so as a viewer, you know, very much a present in devs also. So I think he certainly likes to use music as quite a strong, you know, weapon in his arsenal for sure. But only when it's, you know, I think it's just trying to choose your moments and certainly presumably score you're referring to, but, you know, with the needle drops, we were certainly trying to use them sparingly have more impact when they do come. What kind of discussions did you guys have about uh, the pace or was it something that you watched his other films and felt like this is how he likes to cut? Yeah, I mean, I think in the, in the first conversation I had with him, I think part of probably what he'd seen in the work that had brought me to his attention was a sort of reservation with, it, with cutting, you know, you were talking about in regard to Brooklyn as well. So uh, he'd obviously seen some sort of kindred sensibility within that his preference is, is to take his time and, and certainly you know one of the, the other work he directed you know that I could see that evidence of that but it was really born out of I mean I'm a really big believer that you just always work with the grain and the material you're given and you could just sort of tell from the grammatical choices of how he was shooting it and the tempo the actors were delivering their lines and the sort of the blocking you know he doesn't really go it's not you know it's the antithesis of the West Wing where you're sort of having these long speeches but they're delivered by people walking very fast through corridors and the camera's whizzing around and you know he doesn't go in for any of that he, he kind of wants his actors sitting still and you're really focusing on the dialogue and not any kind of um visual pyrotechnics and so that kind of really informed you know the cutting with them i think to sort of try and inject a false tempo into that would have rung untrue and i think you know to me would have been what i think was trying to force some, something to be something that it is and inherently wanting to be you know so i think i think it just even for the first assembly the initial part of the shoot, they were in the States um, for the first six weeks and I was still in the UK and I wasn't really having that much contact with Alex. But for the most part, I think the assemblies I was giving him were a fairly close approximation of what he had in his mind because, uh, you know, I think it was fairly easy to intuit the kind of pace that he was looking for. And um, so, we didn't, so we didn't really have to have that explicit conversation outside of that. It was really sort of, it was a conversation at the front saying I kind of like things a bit measured and, and then really just took it from there and... So kind of what I'm hearing in you talking about that is kind of the idea that a lot of people talk about of the film tells you how it wants to be cut. When you look at his dailies, you know, because of either the setups or because of the composition or because of the pacing of the actors, that that's really uh, determining your editing speed, pace. I tend to find that with pretty much every film I've ever watched. I think there are times when you you get the material and, and, and you sort of, you can tell that your instincts differ from the directors in terms of maybe how it might work best, but you can certainly feel their will 
being imposed through the Russians. And it can be usually fairly obvious how they sense the structure and if they've shot a developing master and it moves from point A to point B. And it's kind of, you can quite often somewhere down the line veer off quite far off that initial intention. But certainly I tend to find that it's usually quite obvious how directors want it to be from how they've shot it. And certainly, you know, I'll try and make my first assembly reflect that. There may be one or two places where I'll sort of self-consciously try something that I sort of know they didn't have in mind, but I just, to me, it just seems like such an obvious benefit or an interesting take. And so I, I occasionally I'll sort of self-consciously veer off that, but but for the most part, I'll try and serve them up what they thought they wanted and then we'll take it from there. And if I have ideas in my back pocket, I'll bring them out further down the line. Certainly the, the good directors I work with, you can feel what they want from how they've shot it. What happened with the music on that friends and family screening? Did you go back and pull out... And it sounded like you pulled out a lot of stuff at that point. The bigger the audience, the more acute your subconsciousness comes. So, when a, you know, even a producer will walk into the edit suite and you'll play them a scene. And even then you see it in a slightly different way than you just when it was just yourself and the director. And you suddenly go, oh, my God, it's a bit slow here. Or all oh, that line really bumped. Or just having that extra body in the room gives you a sort of fresh set of eyes, as it were. And then if you have 20, 30, 40 extra people then and then obviously if you're a big test screen you've got 400 extra people and then you become really really acutely aware of often it's the pacing you really feel at that point in the case of the music yeah i just suddenly it can be a false read because your adrenaline's running so hard and you're seeing it in a way that's very different to what the audience who's seeing it for the first time are experiencing but it felt to me that we were using the music too manipulatively pulling but i think alex sort of heard my concern and, and he's not someone who's particularly easily swayed from his own internal instincts you know i think he felt pretty comfortable with the amount of music and he wasn't having that visceral audience reactions corrupting his um, view of it. So no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it was just my subconscious just really more than what we actually then, change, changes we then made as a result of it. And I think hopefully, you know, the best music, I quite often something that actually has quite a lot of music in it, but I'm not aware of it. You know, I don't feel the cues coming in and out. I think that's something that we definitely did a bit of work on is I think cues that sort of slide in and insinuate themselves gently throughout a scene and very different to a, a, a cue which you sort of suddenly bring in a huge wall of violins and a certain, you know, when someone says the first sort of sentimental thing in a scene and suddenly, you know, I think that kind of, we were certainly trying to avoid that style of cueing, except for there's one or two places where we're very, very in the sort of more horror-ish moments where we're bringing in massive bass hits and very intentionally assertive cues announcing themselves, you know, so it goes both ways. Sometimes you do want to hit the audience in the face with it, but we were more often than not just trying to bring the cues in gracefully so you don't feel it too much. Is this the first TV show that you've cut or have you cut other TV shows before? I mean, I've been cutting stuff for 20 odd years and only six or maybe seven of that has been consistently cutting features. So in, in the 13 years prior, I was doing absolutely anything and everything. I did a few sort of pilots, you know, I did a few um, things like that. Famous, there was a British show called Skins, which I think was then made in the States unsuccessfully. But a lot of young actors, Dev Patel and um, Nicholas Holt and Jack O'Connell and a lot. Of, it's been a sort of breeding ground for a certain generation of young British actors who came out of that. So I did I did a few episodes of that uh, towards the end of its life, and then I did a show called Misfits, which is a kind of I think has a kind of cult following. It's it's kind of a sort of teen angst superhero. It's, it's very very rude and very sort of gory and very funny. Um, so yeah, then they were, they're both sort of quite big cult shows in the UK. Um, so I had some sense of what it's like to be delivering TV hours rather than feature lengths. 
Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that is the idea of commercial breaks and act breaks are different in TV than film and what your sense of that was or how how that played. Yes, well, I mean, definitely in, in terms of those British TV shows I was doing, we were under that familiar pressure to kind of build to some sort of cliffhanger or, or at least a, a sort of question in 10-minute installments, which forces a weird pressure on the narrative. You know, a film doesn't feel the need to do that every 10 minutes. You know, you're allowed to have whole sections without particular dramatic tensions. It does create this kind of furtive need to constantly be creating false drama. The fact within this we didn't, there was a question I had for Alex when... I first sat down with him and he was fairly confident that FX had told us that we didn't have to worry about that sort of thing. And, and true to their word, it never came up. I mean, there was a time when we were more going to premiere on FX where we had more pressure on our ad breaks. But even then, they were very clear. not We didn't have to change our editing style or rhythms for that. It was just literally you cut the film as you would an unbroken piece of film and we will just put a bumper in there and cut, cut to commercial when you want. I mean, we could have had the choice to to do it a different way but I think Alex was just always had it you know his eye was just always on treating it like an unbroken piece of film and um and just sort of ignore those sort of televisual restrictions or um so we, we didn't really have that pressure um thankfully were you guys choosing your act breaks between the two of you or were they they were scripted no they weren't scripted at all they weren't scripted at all fascinating no nothing no nothing was scripted at all when, when it came down to breaking them up um fx gave us the number of breaks that had to be and the rough amount of time that had to be between them and then Alex changed the ones he didn't agree with. You know. So we, I, I went through. So yeah, I was sort of saving him the burden of having to sort of do all of them. Uh, we very quickly went through them. And, and I think he managed to negotiate fewer ad breaks in episode eight. It has a very sort of dreamy, unbroken, there's almost one piece of score sort of running it for about a 20-minute section of it. And he didn't. He was really reluctant to break that in any way, even for television. So I think he got dispensation from FX to run that even in its broadcast form as one chunk. Now, over here in the UK, it was shown on the BBC anyway, so we didn't have any ad breaks. So I've not seen the ad break version go out. A lot of times I do feel ad breaks very consciously. Oh, you know, they've led up to a cliffhanger moment and now there's an ad. Uh, I didn't feel like that in watching devs. I had not actually considered where the act breaks were when I watched devs, to be honest. Tell me a little bit about developing that sense of tension and a horror feel, especially around like the images of, you know, the girl, the, the gigantic statue. Are you putting those things in scripted or are you feeling like we need a sense of tension or what's, what's generating some of those things? Well, I mean, the presence of the girl statue Obviously, it was definitely scripted, and 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 definitely, it was one of the first bits on the page where you were like, "What?" The description was quite unexpected and arresting, and it was one of those things where you sort of you look forward to seeing it being visualized. A lot of the placement of those things, basically, Alex went and shot a fair amount of helicopter footage as he went back over to just by himself to San Francisco, and he was unhappy with a lot of the second unit material we had to kind of the stuff that was going to create our San Francisco real world material, which we wanted to have, and. So he decided to go back and um, just fly around with a really good helicopter pilot and just shoot a lot of material, which formed the plates for the statue of the girl. Doesn't you know? It's not a physical object; it was entirely a visual effect. So he was shooting just empty plates of trees in order to stick the. It was the right geographical location for where she'd been intended to be placed from the ground. For it. so we we were then had a, a sort of palette of material where we could design our own shots and also place them in different places. So definitely a lot of those 
insertions of the girl statue were things we came up with in post. How spooky it looked, I guess it was always Alex's intention, but it wasn't sort of that obvious from the script that it was going to look so spooky. But it is quite a disconcerting image. Certainly something a nice thing to play with. And I think playing things slow always asks a question of the audience as to why is it being played slower than I'm expecting. And then, so you're sort of waiting for something to happen. And at times where, like if Sergei's leaving the devs cube at night, and we've played a lot of the scenes of him walking away from the cube, and we're fairly slow, by certainly by conventional television standards, you're sort of knowing something's coming at some point. So I think in, in those places, the sort of deliberate pacing really helps a sense to create a sense of dread and uh, and tension. And then and then all the things come together, the music and the off kilter visuals and the pacing all sort of coalesce into one of the, the more pleasing byproducts you get of that, which is which is a really good sense of tension. I, I hope anyway. Definitely. You were mentioning second unit. Um, I know you're talking more about helicopter, but there's some I thought some really nice second unit of on the ground San Francisco city that was mostly alex just shooting himself when he wasn't that trip back he's quite a keen amateur photographer and he brought his own you know high quality digital slr with a very serious lens with him and so when he wasn't shooting from the air he was used to spending his time walking around the streets just shooting little vignettes and observed little bits of san francisco life so there's a few in there which were the from the body of the second unit shoot which either would have been rob hardy picking off things or the specific second unit director but i'd say 70 to 80 percent of what ended up in there is actually alex himself yeah there's some really nice artistic shots that uh, i noticed did you have a a palette of those and were determining where you felt you wanted some breath between more structured scenes Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was no none, none of those were scripted. I mean, to be honest, had Alex been happier with the original second unit shoot, the aerials weren't even in the schedule or the budget to do. It was really as a result of him saying, "This is a bit of a disaster. We don't really have any real world material to put in." Then a whole sort of practical conversation has to take place about where do we find the money and how do we find the time for us to go and do it, etc. Uh, but in a way, it, the, the problem that we had ended up creating a solution that was far better than what we would have. And otherwise, so it, it all worked out in the end. And, and but I mean, I think definitely, you know, yeah, all that air there is between the scenes was something that wasn't written. And I, I just think Alex likes a kind of quite meditative, you know, I'd say almost dreamy kind of pace to a lot of the stuff, which allowed us to have more lyrical moments. I know I love those little moments and in, in that space in between those scenes. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Jake Roberts. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected. Plus, powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. 
And now back to my interview with Jake Roberts. Tell me a little bit about use of wide shots. I think there's a great or at least an interesting use of them, especially like I was watching the scene where there's a scene underneath in a parking garage where you might expect to be on a big close-up to see the action. It cuts out to a wide shot where you can barely see the forms of the people. Uh, talk to me about making those decisions and, and why they were made. Well, that's very specific one. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> he always wanted that fight to be sort of as unsexy as possible and sort of as undignified. And I think seeing these two sort of middle-aged men sort of flailing around from a distance sort of lent it almost a banality that stepping back like that sort of diffused the sort of action quality of it. And also choosing to shoot that whole fight in the slow frame rate, which wasn't scripted again. I mean, I, I was privy to the conversation he was having with regards to sort of this, designing the fight with the stuntmen in terms of him wanting the actors and wanting it to be as undignified and sort of clumsy and sort of like the, he, he didn't like the idea of the violence being in any way sexy or sort of cool. But then I didn't, it was a sort of surprise to me when the, the dailies arrived and they were all cranked down to be super slow-mo and then applied a sort of weird le- level of grace to the whole thing. It ran counter to the violence of it, but again, certainly uh, was counterintuitive in a way that I think is just sort of Alex's sensibility, really. We were just trying to be as cinematic as, as we could. And, you know, I think we got a note from FX quite early on, sort of, you know, TV is a, is a close-up medium, which we, you know, <laughs> thought was fairly ob- a fairly obvious thing to say. And, and we both we both decided to sort of we knew, I mean, we, you know, we understood why the note, why those notes stood, but I think it felt like a slightly old-fashioned thing to say because TV, people's TVs are so big these days. You know, I think when people were watching things on a 24-inch, sure, you know, you had to be in a big close-up to sell an emotion. But I think, you know, my TV is 60 inches here. It's all, you know, it's, and the resolution that we're dealing with, you know, you can play stuff pretty wide and, and convey anything you want, really. So I, I think we were quite keen to stick to our kind of cinematic ideals with regards to the visuals and, and then again that's a pacing thing also because it allows you to play conversations in a master as opposed to just trading close-ups you know the other thing that i would love to talk about is when to know the note is something you should ignore and when to have the lack of ego to realize hey this is a really good note i didn't think of it but there's no reason why fx isn't right <laughs> for example it's quite often said sort of disingenuously of Oh, these are just our thoughts. Go, you know, you can just do whatever you want, and then they really don't mean it. If you don't do it, they just give you the note again and again and again until you eventually give it. And, but within the case of FX with Alex, they really were entirely 100% sincere when they said this is your thing. Frankly, Alex could have ignored every single note they gave, and, and they really put it out there. Generally, often notes won't without fire, and so if you get a note, it means something. It doesn't have to mean what the note thinks it means. And I think what one learns to disseminate is sort of where, where does that chime with your own gut feeling? And, and it's very, very rare that in the scenes you think are absolutely brilliant, you get a note. You just don't. You don't. You tend to get notes in areas where you kind of, you've got issues, your own issues. And and, um, and the note may speak, to, think it's being very prescriptive and precise. And you might know that either the thing that the solution they're suggesting or the thing they have an issue with isn't where the problem lies. But it, it reminds you that there's something that needs to be looked at in that area. You know, it's a well-trodden thing to say that sometimes you can solve an issue in one scene by fixing something in a different scene or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which these things manifest. But I think, again, every good filmmaker I've been in a room with, you don't blindly ignore almost any note. I mean, you pretty much try and hear what it's got to say and try and 
I say, align that with your own guts and, and go looking to solve the problem, but, you know, in a way of your choosing and, and in something, in a way that doesn't in any way make the thing worse in your mind. You could, you know, you're just trying to make it better. And they're, most executives, their heart's in the right place and they want the thing to be better. And definitely Alex, you know, he didn't have to, but we definitely um, did our best to address the vast majority of notes we got. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you, once you spend six months in a room staying with the same material, you need those external jabs to kind of remind you to refresh your own perception of the material. And that's not to say they're quite, they're always quite annoying. <laughs> you can't, you read the list and it, it does always get your back up. And the other thing I always find is that if the director's really upset about them, I'm really calm. And if, and if I'm really upset about them, the director's really calm. One of us has always got our back up. When, once you've had a few glasses of wine, you're fine. You talk them over and you get them done. The trick is to not get your back up on the director's suggestions, or does that happen sometimes? It definitely can happen, but no, you're right. You try and disguise that as much as possible. I, th- I think rigorous conversation is, is healthy. Was all of this shot in the San Francisco area or in America? I'm very pleased you asked that. No, I think five and a half weeks of it was shot in the San Francisco area. And the rest of it was shot in London and rather surprisingly Manchester. I mean, only surprisingly if you've been there, but it's pretty dark and rainy up in Manchester. So um, the whole dev set, the sort of interior of the cube, so the most sort of fantastical sci-fi element of it was because they need the amount of soundstage space they needed for the amount of time it took to do the build. And then the shoot was just so prohibitively expensive in in London or or indeed North America or anywhere else. So Manchester was the sort of most viable location they came up with. And the first six weeks was basically North America, which was all of the, so obviously stuff around the campus, stuff actually on the streets of San Francisco and bits and pieces of of the sort of woods, the forests and all that stuff, I think was pretty much all of that. Yeah, all the interiors stuff and, and some of the other exteriors were in London and then final test bit was in Manchester. So it was a six-month shoot, I think, and only six weeks was in the States. For those five and a half weeks, you didn't go over to San Francisco. You stayed in the UK and they yeah. sent stuff back, Aspera or something to you? or Yeah, basically we were sort of roughly 24 hours behind them in terms of putting up assemblies. Probably 48 because of the time change, but anyway, we were... We were turning stuff around very quick. David McKenzie and quite a few other directors I work with like to see assemblies really quickly. Alex isn't particularly one of those guys. I mean, he, I don't think truthfully he was even watching them during the actual shoot. I think he'd sort of sometimes just watch them all at a weekend, but he wouldn't finish his day by watching. I think he's the kind of director who knows what he's getting. So he's, yeah, he wasn't particularly, it was one or two times where he was particularly nervous about a certain scene or something where he asked me to specifically look at it and get them to show him a cut as quickly as possible. But for the most part, he was just happy to keep moving forwards. Can you describe the way that you approached the material, like a, for a fresh scene when you were looking at a, opening up dailies for the first time or rushes for the first time on a scene? What do you do? My assistants sort of lay it out just in the chronology that it's shot. And I will just, yeah, start it while watching it in the order they shoot it. And what I always do is I don't passively watch it. As I'm watching, I'll always just throw down anything I particularly like into a timeline. As the multiple lines of the same thing, I like multiple versions of the same line, I'll try and sort of cut them into the timeline at roughly the same point. So the, the sort of master palette, as I call it, I'm building is essentially chronological, but I don't want to get too bogged down in that because I'm trying to still keep my brain in a sort of viewing mode. It's more just giving myself the peace of mind that especially you have scenes as long as they are. And if it was a steady cam shot, you can sort of tell where you are in the shot because of uh, the background, because the background will be constantly changing. But with Alex's blocking from a thumbnail still of any bit of any scene, it could almost be any part point in the scene. So 
in terms of trying to sort of pick your way back, follow the trail of breadcrumbs of things you liked, I kind of like the peace of mind of knowing that if someone said a line in a way that I just thought was particularly interesting, that I just know that it, for a fact that it's in this timeline and I'm not going to forget where it was or uh, which take it was. So that's always been my process. It started when I was doing observational documentaries where no bit of material was ever the same twice. I would just always throw down anything I thought was really worthwhile onto a timeline as I was watching. So I've, I've just always stop doing that so that's kind of my first pass i'll then just use that palette as a and refine that palette but with alex's stuff the scenes are so long they're so sort of dialogue heavy i'll, I'll tend to just go back to my memory of what the best and, and just try and work out a structure first in terms of um, my memory of how i think i should structure it and just really go from there but i'll have that palette as a kind of um, insurance policy if i can't find that bit i remember I'll, I'll find it on the palette and i can cut it in from there. The starting point for that from your assistant, they're not putting those things in a bin that way. They're putting it in like a chem roll that way. No, it's a bin. I mean, they just laid out. Um, I mean, I'll see the, you know, the, the each take laid out. I mean, Alex will do as directors, I think increasingly, some of the guys I work with when it's digital will quite often do multiple takes tacked on the end. I mean, so actually one clip will appear in the monitor, but it's actually four takes. So they can be yeah, deceptively more takes than you think there are when you look, when you open the bin, you're going, oh, that's short four comes up. So, uh, and then I actually realize it's 12. But um, yeah, no, he, he's just, I mean, he knows he's really, for someone who started off writing screenplays or writing novels in it, and uh, he's really, really visually sharp and he knows exactly what you need to build a scene structurally and he's really good at sort of contrive i noticed more so than a lot of people i work with sort of he'll get multiple buttons he'll get it he'll stop an actor at the end of a take and when they finish the line and ask them to sort of look a certain way or, or get up and do or do something that you just is a really good useful bit of grammar which will give you a nice sharp out to the scene or something and, will, and even if he gets a good one of them he'll do it multiple try different you know he's constantly having little ideas or things and you so you'll end up Quite often, seven quite elegant ways to end a scene. Or you know, he told me, you know, he, which again, I'm sure, it's true of every director, but he's just gathering material when he's shooting. You know, as much as he can get, and as many different ways. He's not. He doesn't have a set blueprint in his head of exactly how it's going to be. He's up for anything on the day, whatever the day gives him. And if the plan has to change, the plan has to change. Was I know there was a scene in episode five where Nick Offerman's character sees his daughter. It's one of the most crucial, emotionally one of the most crucial scenes in the whole thing. Sees his daughter killed in the car crash. And on take one of the first take, Nick Hoffman pulled his hamstring running up the road, which was meant to be his reaction. And so afterwards could only limp. And so obviously that's completely reconfigure sort of, you know, what Alex had in his head for how his reaction was going to be. But they, you know, they went with it. And, you know, obviously filmmaking always throws you these curveballs. But even in, in terms of, no, it's not even when there's a curveball. Alex, he's not going in there with a particularly fixed plan of what it is he's just trying to get as much material as that will allow him to ultimately tell the story as, as best as we can in hindsight not with a huge amount of premeditation you know your assistant is laying out in bins in order that they were shot the setups and the takes and you're just playing through those one at a time building a selects reel yeah basically i don't ever look at the script notes you know the the what do you call continuity the continuity notes yeah, never. So often, obviously, it is useful to be aware of what they said on the day, but Alex admitted to me afterwards that he just will arbitrarily just say, that's fine, to just to make them feel better. And the thing that I have always found when you do get those little asterisks saying, oh, best take, the director was really after one particular line reading of one particular line. That's what they were fixated on. And so you get to take seven, but that doesn't mean to say that 
the previous 12 lines of dialogue in the scene were better in that particular take. It's very rare that we'll use the same take throughout a whole exchange anyway. You know, you're, you're almost always cherry picking unless the emotional temperature is wildly different in one particular one or, or there's sort of tears or whatever. But for the most part, you know, we're, we're jumping between the takes. And so I will always approach every take as potentially the best one. Yeah. Likewise, I'll never link A and B camera. I'll always treat them as two separate cameras. So, because I think the temptation is the minute you multi-cam them, you just, you'll watch one camera and just assume you know what the other one's doing. Even if it's a sort of front-on single and a profile single, your access to the face, it will read that two different emotional responses, depending on the angle you're on. Even though it's really boring to watch them again and again and again, the temptation is to cut the corners. I'll always separate them out, treat them like they're individual um, performances, because I just think you see different things. I, I make it hard for myself that I watch it all. And you might also fall into the trap that you use it as multicam and the exact out point that you're cutting off of one camera, you're cutting to the exact same in point on the other camera where you probably wouldn't do that if they were shot separately. Yeah. Sometimes it weirdly feels like a compression. You know, I think I quite often find with if someone's throwing a punch or whatever, you want to sort of slip it out of sync by three frames or something to make your eye carry the, you know, the, the true, as it were, multicam cut doesn't read correct and actually you need to sort of break the reality of it to create something that looks correct from a film perspective anyway. I mean, I just think you have to go with what looks right. Uh, as far as the process is concerned, where do you stand on when you start assembling one scene to another? As soon as you know you've got scene three next to scene four, you're, you're assembling them, or do you wait? I know I assemble them as the minute they get in um, because I don't read continuity notes. I've quite often assembled a scene and thought, God, it's a bit lacking certain things. And then it's not till the next day that I get the rest of the scene. And I'm like, oh, thank God they did shoot. But it's like, I'm in it. But I've quite often got to the point where I've been like kind of okay with the assembly I had. And then sort of 70% of the scene then arrives the next day. I'm like, okay, well, that's a relief. <laughs> um, but I'll, no, I'll tend to, as soon as the material's there, and, and I'll, I'll tend to start working with it. For example, you've got all the scenes in San Francisco that all had to be shot all at the same mm -hmm. time. So when you get scene one and you realize, oh, three weeks later, here's scene two, I can now assemble scene two to scene one. You try to do that as soon as you can. Um, for sure. And I mean, uh, that's where I'll start to sort of refer to it as a sequence rather than a sort of scene. I mean, as soon as it's sort of two scenes, it's, it then in my mind becomes a sequence and I'll sort of move into a different bin. But then obviously, invariably, you re then recut at least bits or pieces of the scene certainly almost always the transition in or out if um so the last line first line kind of thing will almost always need to change but sometimes i might completely recut the whole scene even at the assembly stage on the basis of information i suddenly have from the previous scene or whatever so no i'll always try and keep the assembly as fluid but also as, as current as i possibly can so that essentially if i went under a bus on the last day of shooting there will be a full assembly with transitions, with music, with sound effects. As close as I can get to it, be it looking, you know, if we're trying to make a TV episode, as close as I can get to a finished TV episode is what is always in the Avid, sort of currently ready to go, barring two or three scene missing cards, you know. So, I mean, on, on most of the features I've done, we've been able to screen a cut the day after the shoot's finished. You can run an assembly of the whole film. Yeah, that's pretty quick. So you mentioned that you're cutting an Avid. Have you ever cut in any other NLE? There was a period where, due to sort of economics in a way, I was I was cutting on before Final Cut Pro, when it went from, basically I think when it went from seven to X, 
where they just sort of changed their whole licensing model and decided to go after the pro-am market. I'd done two or three super low budget features on Final Cut at that point. But no, I've always really worked. I, I learned on Avid and, and done the vast majority of things that I've worked on on Avid. Jake, thanks so much for talking with me on Art of the Cut. There's just some killer information in this interview that I think readers and listeners will really learn from. I appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Jake Roberts, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. Then be sure to spread the word and tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.